Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and, of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. And as always, we've got another busy show in store. We'll take a look back at New Zealand cancelling their tour of Pakistan. We'll get the latest on the ashes with Australian cricket writer and broadcaster Robert Craddock. And look back at a thrilling T20 finals day, which saw Kent win their first trophy in 14 years. As well as that, we'll pay tribute to the great Michael Holding, who retired from the commentary box this week. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. Well, Harmi, it hasn't been announced at the, the time we're doing the show, but I cannot, cannot see England going. Can you? No, I can't see England going. I think the same security company look after New Zealand, uh, they look after England, and I feel so sorry for the Pakistan fans. Um, how hard... Uh, was it Khan especially I know the guy personally he's a top man and you know I played against him quite a few times in my early days um, and he's tried so hard to get people back to Pakistan the love for Pakistan cricket again he's built bridge after bridge sent teams over to England during COVID and for this to happen I'm just talking about Wazim personally I, I really feel for that guy because he's he's tried to you know, to get the world to come back to Pakistan and play cricket. I've been a few times. To, it's a fascinating place to go and play. And to not have cricket in your own country, for, especially for you as a player. I'm thinking of that as a player. You know, to have your family watch you play a home test match or a home one-day national or a home T20 um, is arguably the best thing you'll, you'll ever do as a, an international sportsman. And for that just to be taken away at the last minute, like it has been, you know, I'm not going to judge on politics or anything like that, somebody else's game. But where we are at this moment in time, I, I just can't see England going to Pakistan for, for reasons of 
of security, and that is is sad, really. Now let's hear from Pakistan and their government minister, Assad Umar, who was understandably disappointed. The decision is perplexing. It doesn't reconcile with uh, what the team, the New Zealand team, had experienced in their six days so far in the, in the city. Pakistan government minister, Assad Umar. Delighted to say that we're joined now by ESPN Crick Info's Osman Samiuddin, who will no doubt have been following proceedings in Pakistan with great concern and, and great care and, and probably great remorse as well after everything that, uh, that Pakistan have done, many people, to get international cricket back there. But it was the shock of how it happened, Osman. I think that uh, caught all of us by surprise. I, I know that you've been following developments. My goodness me, to, to leave a tour to pull out... A, such last-minute notice. Quite extraordinary. What have you learned? Yeah, it is, you know, extraordinary and sad, I guess, for Pakistan. But, you know, added from a distance, I think you can you can understand why it's happened. Uh, you know, and, and it, it's not in New Zealand's control as to when the threat comes to them. It, it's, it's come, and they've had to react to it, and they've made the best decision in, in, their, own, uh, in their own interest, which is completely understandable. I mean, we were told early on that, you know, the threat had emerged I think 36 hours before the scheduled pickup of the game. And part of the time it took for just the threat to filter down from governments to cricket boards and so on and, and to be shared and stuff. And so I know that uh, NZC got in touch with, with Pakistan, with the Pakistan Cricket Board at like 3 a.m. Pakistan time, Friday morning. So the, so the game was 12 hours later and they got in touch with the, with the Pakistan Cricket Board at 3 a.m. So, you know, that gives you an indication of when they would have found out. If that would have been, what, 11, I think, in the morning in New Zealand. And they would have found out probably overnight, which tallies to the whole 36-hour thing. So I think the timing of it was not in their control. And, and, and there was, I think there's little doubt that there was some kind of threat there. Of course, you know, they wouldn't, have, they wouldn't have come to Pakistan in the first place if they didn't want to play. That's what I keep saying to people who are very angry about this, is that they wouldn't have come to Pakistan for the first time in 18 years if they didn't want to play. And, you know, they only would have gone out, they would have abandoned it only because they clearly felt that there was something credible there that they just couldn't take a chance on. The fact that um, David White said that there were details of the threat that he would not share with the Pakistan Cricket Board, either publicly or privately, adds a, a level of, of mystique um, and terror, I suppose, to the threat. I guess we'll, I guess we'll never know, or maybe in 30 years' time or 20 years' mm -hmm. time. But that level of secrecy concerns me to the, to the point where it will add to the doubts of other nations and future engagements that the PCB attempt to organize. Yeah, you know, I think it, that that's very much down to the relationships between countries and cricket boards. So, you know, New Zealand and, and Pakistan have, have a fine relationship, but it's not like they have a very deep and longstanding relationship in that sense. I think, you know, with, with, with a board like the England Cricket Board and the governments of England and Pakistan, there may have been more information sharing. I, it, it does seem strange that they didn't want to share the threat, but maybe there was an element of not trusting enough. I wouldn't say distrust, but not trusting enough that information at the risk of the safety of their own players at that time. The other concern, Oz, is that the perception will be created, no doubt, that this threat was a threat at cricket rather than the New Zealand cricket team. I mean, everyone loves the Kiwis, don't they? I mean, that's like threatening soft toys you know what I, i'm not a hundred percent sure and like I, again I'm, I'm no security expert but I, I if you go by how you know they've they've uh, terror groups have reacted and acted in the past and the, and the kind of threats they've made 
I suspect it would be a move. Uh, it, it would be more of a threat to Western nations uh, or you know NATO countries. So it, it, you were looking at countries like the UK, you're looking at countries like Australia and New Zealand. And, and I would feel and I would think that the attention wouldn't be so high on countries like Sri Lanka touring or Bangladesh touring or even the West Indies. Um, South Africa came earlier in the year and, you know, the, there were no issues there. And, you know, what we were told, we, we spoke to some security uh, officials and they said that, you know, these, these kind of or the threats that they believed had been made are the kind of threats that happened before any of these big cricket events anyway. And they kind of take it as par for the course now. And, it, and, and, and their assessment was that, you know, because New Zealand, uh, they, they, they live so far away, one, they're not used to this kind of stuff. You know, they, they take a threat much more seriously than somebody in Pakistan would. You know, in Pakistan, it's kind of something that they, 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 they deal with on a daily basis. But you've got to respect that, you know, New Zealand doesn't. And, and so they were within their, well within their rights, completely within their rights to pull their team out when they felt they were unsafe. And on the cricket side, Osman, it's... It's heartbreaking for for Pakistan fans. You know, I've been two, three times now, and it's a it's a it's a fascinating place to tour, and the the, the enthusiasm for the game is just ridiculous. Um, the chief exec was was in Khan. I played against him a few times, and what a lovely fellow he is. And I've mm. seen his interview just this morning there, and I, I feel so sorry for everybody involved in Pakistan cricket. But they've got they had seven games going into the World T Twenty. They now potentially have none. From a cricketing point of view, how important is it that they regroup quickly? They've got two new coaches, a new board that's been set up. It's going to be interesting times for Pakistan on the field as well as what's just happened off the field. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you say seven games. So they, they had a five-game series against West Indies of which four matches were washed out. So they, they played one out of five. Mm. They're going to not play these five against New Zealand now. And possibly the two against England. So you're looking at one out of 12 matches in your run-up. I mean, for once, the PCB had planned it really well. You know, they had 12 games running in, uh, plus your local domestic T20 tournament, not the PSL, but the less glamorous version, the National T20 Cup, which is starting next week. Um, So, you know, there was plenty of time for people to kind of get this match practice in. And, you know, for for, for events out of their control, for reasons out of their their hands, they're going to end up playing one out of 12. That's not ideal. Um, especially as they're still kind of a T20 team, you know, they're still finding their, their way through. They've got a couple of issues in the middle order, which they've not been able to resolve. And I think they were hoping that, you know, these matches would give them some more idea. Now, of course, they've had a change of the coaching setup. Um, and we've got, you know, we, we, they've, they've pulled in Matthew Hayden and, and Vernon Philander as kind of specialist coaches, coaches working underneath Saklen Mustak. And I'm not sure about either of those appointments, uh, mainly because, you know, neither of them have had any kind of real coaching experience. Uh, Vernon was still playing. Uh, and I, I know that Western province weren't entirely happy that he's, that they signed up this deal for him to be coaching while he's still supposed to be playing for them in the domestic season. So, you know, he was still playing. Hayden, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember now, but I don't think he's done any actual coaching. He's, no. he's been a mentor for some Australian sides uh, at the behest of Justin Langer, I think, but... And, and, you know, I, I think that's what he probably brings, like a few words and a little bit of kind of chest out encouragement. But judging by what people have been saying about him, I, I, I can't see him adding that much to Pakistan's batting unit, especially, the, you know, the, where, where they need help. They're very heavy. They're top, they're top heavy. They're loaded up with anchors like Babur and, um, and, and Hafiz and Rizwan, of course. What they need is like, you know, people in that middle who are real kind of power hitters. They don't waste balls. They come in, they can hit sixes and stuff. 
I just don't see where Hayden is going to kind of help with that issue, other than maybe a few words of kind of motivational encouragement. But I can't see it going beyond that, really. And Vernon, you know, great bowler, great test bowler, um, 200 plus wickets at a very low average. But, you know, who's he going to be advising with kind of bowl to bowl, like Steve said off there earlier, you know, 78 miles an hour at the top of off stump. It's not going to work very well in, in, in T20s, is it? No, I don't think it is. I, was, I can only assume that the Hayden Philander axis is a temporary thing just for the T20 World Cup um, and that uh, Ramiz Raj's vision is, um, is, a, is a longer one, um, a longer term uh, plan that he has for Pakistan cricket. I mean, I, I hope so. You know, he's, he has said, I think that it, it I, I think it revealed some of the thinking though in the, in the way that he sold both of them. You know, Matthew Hedden, part of this Australia winning side, he's won World Cups and stuff. And, and Vernon Philander, I think he specifically mentioned in the release that he had a great record against Australia. But, you know, Australia were a great side until like the mid 2000s. Uh, and, and they haven't been a great side for a long time, least of all in T20s. Mm. And, and if you think of all like the wealth of coaching, uh, of coaches that they've produced, uh, if we're sticking with Australia, you know, th there's a lot of decent coaches out there, especially for the short format. That, you know, there's good coaches around the world for short format stuff, not least within Pakistan. Uh, you know, Abdul Rahman, who, who works with Zalmi, is, is very highly rated by a lot of the players, a lot of the batters especially. But Pakistan are never going to give him a shot because I don't think guys like Ramiz uh, and certainly not Imran Khan know enough of the game right now in the country to be able to highlight him and, and bring him in and speak to players. I mean, you know, Ramiz was very... He, he was not entirely endorsing of Barber's captaincy as well uh, in his press conference. You know, he, he wanted him to show kind of more attitude and, and more kind of aggression and stuff. And you just wonder, like, you know, you, you, the PCB have built Barber's profile very assiduously over the last year. You know, they, they, they pushed him to become like this great thing. And he, he's a very good batsman, but, you know, he, he's not ended his career yet. And he's not great. But the PCB have been pushing him very hard to become like this kind of figure for Pakistan cricket. And then here comes suddenly the new chairman. He's like, well, you know, I'm not 100% sure about his coach. And, and, and the fallout, of course, the collateral is, the worry is that, you know, it might affect his batting and that Pakistan can least afford to affect the batter, batting of like, you know, probably their greatest talent in the last like 20 years. So yeah, it's, it's interesting times. Ramiz has got a lot on his plate immediately now that we're here. Uh, and then we can worry about Hayden and Philander in the dressing room. <laughs> when is it not interesting times in Pakistan cricket? Osman? Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, we always enjoy your insight and your, uh, and, your, and your knowledge. Thank you very much indeed. Anytime, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Osman Samiuddin, ESPN Crick Info correspondent. Right, let's hear from New Zealand Cricket uh, Chief Executive David White, who said that uh, despite what happened, he had no regrets about the team going to Pakistan in the first place. I'm comfortable with the decision we made. We went through a, a thorough, thorough security checks. Uh, we're ensured of the very high level of security that was to be provided. And also, um, there have been a number of teams that have toured there recently. Uh, you know, South Africa a few months ago, the West Indies, Zimbabwe. So we don't regret the decision to tour there. But like I said, um, on Friday, it all changed when the secure, security levels increased significantly. That was New Zealand Cricket Chief Executive uh, David White. Now, I'm delighted to say that we're joined on the line now from Islamabad by um, one of the world's most experienced independent television directors um, who was there, was due to be 
directing the, the series uh, between uh, Pakistan and New Zealand, it must have been quite extraordinary, Himant. I mean, a couple of days ago, I would have said unprecedented that uh, a game should be called off within a, an hour or a couple of hours of the start. But of course, we saw it with the fifth test between England and India. But just talk us through what happened. I mean, you spent the day rigging and getting the whole production ready the day before. You turn up to the ground, you're, you're ready to go. How did you hear the news? We actually uh, were working until 4 a.m. You know, on the day of the game, we were we were setting stuff up uh, because there were there were a few issues around the equipment, as there always are in the first game. And this was a short rig, so we we were working. We were we were doing our stuff at about 4 a.m. We left. We we came back. I I delayed the call time by a little bit because I wanted people to recover. We came to the ground, and we started stuff as usual. We prepped everything. And then we just realized that the players were not at the ground. So we thought that perhaps it's, you know, uh, an issue where they started late. It, it happens sometimes. And uh, we were to go on air 45 minutes before the start of play. At that time, the players were not on. So we were foreseeing a slightly delayed start, but, you know, nothing of, uh, you know, of the ilk of what happened. And we rolled the clock to start. And we were 33 seconds away from going on air when we were told to stop. Uh, so, yeah, so we, we were basically 33 seconds away from broadcast. I, I've never seen that happen before, and I hope it never happens again. It was it was quite interesting and, yeah, unprecedented, as you said. What were you told, Himan? When, at what stage, I presume you assumed it was a COVID issue. At what point did you learn that it was a security issue? I think uh, one of the commentators got a message from his agent suggesting that it could be uh, a security issue. We didn't know anything about that. We all presumed, and there were stories doing the rounds that three New Zealand players had tested positive. So so that was our thought process, and, and we, we were wondering whether it would be a similar situation as, as happened in India, that perhaps they would, they, uh, you know, with the Indian tour of Sri Lanka, where they would cancel a couple of matches or push it back by a day or something and play two matches at a stretch. But eventually, it didn't turn out that way. I mean, it you know, we, we got to know about an hour or so later that uh, there was actually an issue with security and uh, that this match would definitely not go ahead. Uh, we didn't know the fate of the series as well because, again, with, with security, you, you presume that there might have been something and you don't go to the ground for one game and then things get sorted out and then you come back unless there is something dramatic that has happened. So that, that was where we were. Was there any sense because you're at the you're at the ground the day before? You say you're setting up rigging, and my experience as a player, you both teams train the day before, two days before, on the ground, you know, catching practice, feeling, trying to get used to being in yeah in your surroundings. Was there any sense there was there was something mumbling then because both teams probably would have would have been out on the field practicing while you were doing your rigging up. Oh, it was it was very relaxed. Every, I mean, the New Zealanders were practicing, the Pakistanis had practiced earlier, so there was absolutely no sense of that. Actually, we were we were asked not to to use the ground while the teams were practicing, so that was one of the things that delayed our rig as well. We had to wait until they had vacated the ground, so they practiced, you know, in the normal fashion for a good long while, and they seemed quite happy, which which was which was why it was an absolute bolt from the blue the next day when when this transpired and and apparently. According to the news reports that that I see, things changed overnight as per New Zealand. So it was a little bit strange for us uh, that there was there was absolutely no inkling of anything, and then suddenly they just up stakes and left. And uh, these these things happen, obviously. And and if there is 
uh, a threat or a perceived threat, then teams are, are right to go for you know whatever decision they, they want, depending upon government advice. But what I find you know strange is that nothing has been shared, and they're saying they won't even share it with uh, with the host board. So if there was a problem, you know, surely you owe it to the host to to let them know what the issue was. Especially because their players are, are there as well, and they would, you know, if there is a security issue, they could fall prey to it as well. So, so I I would think that you know they should have let you know the host board know what the problem was at least, so that the host board could go and solve it. Just finally, Himan, um, it was remarkable. We don't know the details, but it was remarkable for David White, the New Zealand cricket chief executive to say that there were details that he would share neither privately nor publicly with the, with the Pakistan Cricket Board, which, which is extraordinary. And but we don't know the details, so we, I guess we shouldn't judge. My instinct is one of enormous sympathy with the Pakistan Cricket Board. You've spent a lot of time in the country. It must have been deeply disappointing, and that's an understatement. Absolutely. Very, very deeply disappointing, especially because they've done so much to bring cricket back uh, to uh, to the nation. So, I mean, that's, you know, it, this becomes a huge setback because it allows other countries to sort of pull out as well. It becomes a sort of, you know, fallback for everybody else. And and it is going to be tough, especially Ramiz Raja having just taken over. You know, he had lots of plans. Now he has to go back to uh, the basics and get everything rolling again to build the confidence up again. So that's that's a that's an issue that I see. But yeah, I mean I, I think that they have they've gone through this before, they've survived and uh, I have all hopes that they will they will do so again. I feel sorry for the players because they had you know seven T twenty games lined up before the World Cup and now they might have none. And that is a tough thing for a for a team that was you know wanting to settle in their combinations and perhaps you know even make one or two changes before the October 10 deadline and all that goes out of the window all of a sudden and they don't even know why because details will not be shared. So it's it's a little bit harsh on them. I won't judge New Zealand because obviously there must be some mitigating factors. But I just feel that, you know, if, if everybody knew what had happened, then there would be some sort of closure for everyone. Himant, thank you for your time, your insight and your wisdom and your expertise when I occasionally work for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Manas. Now, the Ashes is set to begin in just over two months, yet the England players still don't know if they'll be going to Australia this winter or not, with several players prepared to pull out if the quarantine rules don't change or at least relax a little bit. Let's get more on this as Australian cricket writer and broadcaster Robert Craddock joins us. Crash, fantastic to have you with us once again. I've got a whole list of questions here, but I'm not going to start on them because um, we're just going to ask you for a summary of the situation. I want to know, first of all, if you're still as confident as you were three or four weeks ago that the Ashes won't be postponed or, or even moved. Um, so, so give us an update, and then Harmy and I will fire away with questions. OK, Manners, here's the long and the short of it. I believe the chance of the Ashes being postponed is zero. Scheduling just doesn't allow it, so I'm not even going to talk about it. As far as being abandoned... I don't believe it'll happen. The breakthrough came yesterday with Stuart Broad's column in the Mail on Sunday saying, I'm going to tour. And he actually said, I believe 100% there will be some sort of England team in Australia. Now, that pretty much lines up with what we're we're hearing, that no, it won't be a full-strength team, uh, that some players will withdraw. But Australia will simply say to England, just keep 
picking them until you get a team that comes here. It's worth $200 million to Australia. The series has to go ahead. There may be two tests in some states, none in others, but I think it'll happen. And just a little bit more on that. I mean, um, it seems that Queensland and Western Australia, uh, Brisbane and Perth, are, uh, seem to have got the, the pandemic under control. Or am I, am I, uh, am I under-reading the situation? No, they have. Queensland had zero cases today and Perth is basically like a fortress. But managed, something else has happened which is really interesting. New South Wales is just about to open up. It's reaching about 70% vaccination and it's just about to trial a system where you can come in from overseas and only have seven days quarantine. Now, I've spoken to the New South Wales government and I said, have cricket called you at all? And they said, no, but we're expecting a call. I think that could be a vehicle for a lot of English players to ease their tensions. I mean, a seven-day quarantine. I mean, they're doing six for the World Cup in Dubai. So I think that that may ease a bit of tensions. But look, it's fascinating to see. I've generally got no idea how many frontline players will pull out of the England team. I'm sure Steve would be better informed on that than I am. I know they've spoken to young single players in the squad and said, We've, we've got to be all in this together. So it's interesting. Yeah, from a excuse me, from a player's point of view, though, Crash, it's having an idea of where you're going, what you're doing, or, or what the, the restrictions are at this minute in time. Nobody seems to know. And what Stuart was saying in his in his column, and you know, you know the, the point that he, he wrote yesterday, I thought it was a fantastic column by Stuart Broad, saying we want to go, we want to help, we want to keep cricket playing, but we want to know what the situation is before we make a decision. If the decision is 14 days quarantine, families can't come, then at least the players know what's going on. And I think that is a frustrating part from a lot of players' perspective is, right, I'm happy to go if you tell me what I'm going to do. Yep. And I think that is the stumbling block at this minute in time for a lot of the players. And the frustrating part from ECB and probably Cricket Australia to get the players over there is the need to know what sort of restrictions is going to be when they land in Australia to get them to best prepare to perform for an Ashes mm. series because cooped up in a hotel for 14 days not being able to train and not being able to get out and not being able to go and then say right you're going to go and play a test match in two weeks time that that can't happen because the, the players will not be not be ready to perform for England. Yeah, I, I thought it was a terrific point by Stuart and, and I totally get that Steve because I sense that from England's point of view, it's almost like stepping back in time to where they were 12 months ago with lockdowns and all that. And you've moved past that in England and, and, and we get that and we get how intimidating it must be to move backwards. So I'll put this on you. I think it probably will be 14 days quarantine, but they will be allowed out to train each day. Now, mm. if, if, if that's roughly the quarantine um, demands on them, Steve, what, what's your gut feeling? Uh, I mean, do you think there'll be further players pull out? Will that be enough? Will some players say, no, no, I just can't do it? I think players will pull out. I think what some players will probably be pulling out for is not the quarantine, it's the family family situation over Christmas. I think that is a different argument altogether. I think if you've got players coming to, coming to Australia, um, having the 14 days, but being able to train and being able to get ready and perform for England, I don't see there being an issue there. I think a lot of the... A lot of the other stuff, the players pulling out will be more for family reasons and that basically. So, you know, England will send a team. 
I look at the last 12 months you mentioned, and we can talk about the, the, what's happened with Pakistan and New Zealand trying to keep cricket going. But Cricket Australia, for for their for large part, I think I, I seen a I seen a stat the other day, just this morning. You know, teams that have played away test matches so far during this pandemic in 2019, and Australia haven't played a test match away from home. So for for Cricket Australia and the Australian government to say yes, we're going to lose 200 million, we are desperate for England to come. Well, they didn't come to the Rugby World Cup. They haven't gone away and played cricket away from home. Is it, is it an argument for the ECB to say, well, why, why should we move when you're not moving with the world cricket stage? Do you know what? Totally fair question. I mean, Australia has no high ground in this argument, Steve. Like, let's put it this way. Australia didn't even go to South Africa. That tour was cancelled. They didn't set foot in the country. Half the team or a quarter of the team didn't go to the West Indies and Bangladesh recently. So if that's the stance you take you then can't criticise English players for not coming here. And I think that, you know, it, it's totally fair. It, it really is. I don't see much wriggle room, Steve, in those quarantine conditions for the family. I think the government will say to cricket, hey, hang on, we're already giving you concessions. We're letting wives and that into the country and family when 10,000 Australians want to come home and can't. I think that's their argument. If it was just up to cricket, they would loosen all these qualifications. But it's it's there and it's a sticking point. And I'm sort of, you probably think that Australia's thinking, oh, I hope it's a weak team. It's absolutely the opposite. Australia's would love to see Ben Stokes here. We know he's not coming. They'd love to see Archer here. We know he's not coming. We hope it's the strongest possible team. We really, really do. And yeah, on that, on that crash, the, the, you know, the, how do you, how can you, reassure the England players that the, the restrictions aren't going to change while they're in the country. What happens if they're moving a, a test match the following week and all this comes in? This is, for me, why it has to be sorted out literally as soon as possible because England picked their squad next week. If I'm an England player, I'm going to my board, I'm going to Ashley Giles. Well, what happens if these borders close? Yep. What happens if we get stuck here? What, you know, All these questions... They need to be answered very, very quickly. How close are, are Cricket Australia? The Australia government to say, right, we're going to play three test matches here, two test matches there. This is your quarantine law. Right, who's coming? It's a good question because that was what India's frustration was last time they were in, in Australia last season. The rules actually changed after they got here. And <laughs> Ravi Shastri, you know how he delivers a great sermon? Like, when yeah. they got to the last test at the Gabba, he said, we are being, you know, we're being cornered here and we're being wronged and all this. And he gave, gave this Churchillian address to the players about how Australia was ganging up at him. And guess what? It seeped in. It motivated them beyond belief. And they cracked the 33-year hoodoo at the Gabba. So it's funny. He turned a negative into a positive. But the point is a correct one. Australia can only give so many guarantees to England because when they come here, COVID being COVID... And as I said, there's seven different Australians. Things can change on the run. Just a quick one from me, Crash, um, before we let you go. Give us an update on the team and Tim Payne. But, but mostly, I want your view on Matthew Hayden being appointed as Pakistan's batting coach or batting consultant for the T20 World Cup. I find that fascinating. You're his biographer. Um, you know him better yeah. than most. I've always found that he talks a kind of um, high, highbrow gibberish. 
even when he's speaking English. So I, I don't know whether how he, that language barrier, that double language barrier is going to work with the Pakistan batsman. And, and does he have any coaching experience at all? I know that Ramiz Raja said, well, he's Australian and he's won World Cups. So, you know, who needs coaching qualifications if you're blessed with those qualities? Yeah, well, here's the thing. Uh, I actually spoke to Matthew in Dubai. The order came down from Imran Khan, the Prime Minister, who said, get Hayden. So he said to Ramiz Raja, so completely out of the blue came the call. And Haydos said, oh, look, I'm not much thinking about coaching. And he thought, you know what, I might do it. It's an interesting one because he had some gladiatorial contests with Pakistan players, including Shoaib Akhtar. There was a time in the desert they were playing in Sharjah. And he actually counts. He said to, to uh, Shoaib, you'll be off the field in four overs. I'm going to count down those balls. 24, 23. You know what I mean? Sent him. They used to have these great struggles. But there was a great respect there. He said to me, he said, and your point's a good one, Manners, about, he's, you know, it's quite cerebral, Matthew. He said, I'm just going to be really simple with the players and try and just get them to play with freedom in, in 2020. I'm going to do a lot of watching. I'm going to do a lot of listening. And he's there with Vernon Philander, who, of course, uh, was he the most underrated bowler in the world during his era? He probably was, Neil, wasn't he? And, and so uh, it's a challenge he never thought he'd have, completely and utterly from left field. And when I picked up the phone to him, you know what his first sentence was? He said, are you going to write the headline? How about this? Hayden after Langer's job. <laughs> of course, because he's not. He doesn't want to do it. But he spends half his life sticking up for Justin Langer, but they will come up against each other in the World Cup. It'll be great. And on that point, the final point then, is Justin Langer still under pressure? And, and is Tim Payne going to be fit? And how's the rest of the team looking? I mean, they've hardly played any cricket for a year. Tim, it's a really good... I mean, Steve Statt was right. Zero overseas tests in two years. Tim Payne had two discs replaced in his neck and he reckons to be right for the first test. So it's, I get it that he's going to be, but gee, it's a big, big operation. Um, Justin Langer, yes, is under pressure, but his contract ends in about eight months, Manners. So the players after not playing for so long have just got to be big enough to just get on with the job. I just think, and I'll be interested to hear Steve on this, but, the, 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 the coaches who have gone the journey in international cricket are the coolest cats. Trevor Bayliss, John Wright, John Buchanan, even Duncan Fletcher. But just they're, they don't add to the tension in the dressing room. That's Justin's challenge. He's a, he's a good man. He tries hard. But somehow in a test match, I think there's... I remember when Bayliss got the England job, he said there's enough tension in a dressing room without the coach adding to it. And I think Justin had to be mindful of that. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a great point. From a coaching point of view, you have to you make the players feel comfortable as possible, especially in the heat of a, a test match battle when mentally cricketers get tired. And we've seen in, in England against India and talked about it, the oval and the men, it's like the same mental disintegration. It's not, it's just tiredness. What happens? Messing mistakes. And if your coach is constantly, you feel as though he's, your eyes are at the back of your neck and you think he's, he's watching you or he's, he's putting you under pressure. That's not a great environment to be. But I'm sure Justin's learning how to, to get better as a coach. And, you know, that if that's a point that, that needs to be addressed, then I'm, I'm sure he, he knows he's been in enough dressing rooms and, and he's, he's big enough to, and man enough to admit that if his coaching style does need to tinker a little bit, 
I'm sure he'll be fine because I think he's a fantastic coach. He's a good man. And you've seen the documentaries, which was was interesting, I must admit. I'm not sure I would have enjoyed having a camera crew in, in my, my dressing room when I was playing. But um, just one thing about Justin Langer, he's a good, good man. And if you've got him on your side, I, um, I think you're, you're, you're a very, very privileged to have it because he was a fantastic player and he is a good coach. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe and Double Ashes winner, Steve Harmison. Still to come, we'll pay tribute to Michael Holding after he announced he'll retire from the commentary box. But next, we'll look back at a thrilling T20 finals day. This is the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with the Institute of Cricket. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, then I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including... England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies in the culinary capital of the Caribbean. There truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, truly the best place to be a cricket fan. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. If you've missed any of the show or you wish to catch up, you can download the podcast now available via the following on feed on the free TalkSport app or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, time to talk and review T20 Finals Day. And do you know what, Harmi? I want to start with what probably should be my conclusion. And that is that if any English cricket lovers and fans don't realise what a special day it is in the world calendar and what an amazing day for an occasion Finals Day is and how well it's run um, and what a world-class venue Edgebaston has become, 
I just want to say from somebody who's lucky enough to travel all around the world, watching cricket in different places and different events and different big, big occasions, T20 finals day is really, really special. Cherish it. It's a marathon, and I have to say, um, it's arduous, particularly for those who have to work throughout the whole of it. I wasn't there this time, but it was hard work just being part of it on TV. But seriously, honest, what a what a day, what an occasion! It is a fantastic occasion. I, I was fortunate to be in a cricket club watching the final. I was at Shaw Cricket Club speaking at a dinner, um, and we had it on in the background. It was amazing. We had. I was on, there was a comedian on, but everybody seemed to have one eye on the TV and no interest in what I was seeing, full stop. So, and I must admit, I, I kept what kept a, a close eye on it as well. It was it was a fascinating day. The stories from start to finish, you know, Darren Stevens playing against Archie Lenham, you know, first, you know, he won it in 2004, like two weeks after he was born. It was... You know, Joe Denley and, and 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 Darren Stevens winning it in 2007 and going winning it again. And I think my overall emotion at the end of it was we've spent a lot of money on 100. We have had four weeks where potentially we've cost us the India Test Match Series because they've walked out and gone home because they've been twiddling their thumbs for four weeks. And we talk about how good the blast is. And we haven't said much about the blast this year because the TV companies and other organisations didn't really want to push the blast because we're desperate to push the 100. Well, I think we've just seen a showcase of a fantastic event with four sides who there was there weren't the sort of big household names, all from the Southern group. Sussex have worked so hard to get there. They blew their chance and they didn't perform on the day. And you look at the Kent side, you know, not many super superstars, but boy, it, it just shows you... A team will beat superstars every day of the week when a team you know, plays together and performs well. And I thought Bell Drummond was excellent in game one. I thought Stevens, again, 45-year-old. Um, I just thought it was a fantastic day of domestic cricket. And even, even the, uh, the mascot race was highly entertaining. Um, and again, I'll back up exactly what you said there. Edgebaston Cricket Ground, Warwickshire's the home of Warwickshire Cricket Cricket Club, is a fantastic venue for sport. It's a great atmosphere, and a great viewing point, and under lights, it was magnificent. So well done to everybody at Warwickshire, um, and well done to Kent. The first semi-final, Somerset did it at Hampshire, to, to Hampshire. You know, you just thought, you, when Hampshire were 80 for five, you just thought, can they do it again? Can they come mm. back again? And they did almost, because, you know, Somerset needed... 45 or 50 off the last four overs and got them. Unbelievable. Ben Green, 35 off 18. Josh Davey um, had just an amazing, I mean, he yeah, took four for 34 and then scored 11 off three balls with a four yeah. and a six to win the game with a couple of balls to spare. So, so you just wondered then whether Somerset might be uh, destined for, for success in the final. But as you said, um, Kent were resilient. They finished top of the group. So, you know, in many ways they they deserve to to be successful at the end. Okay, let, we need to talk about Jordan Cox. What did he had? Um, <laughs> his innings was fantastic. His catch was brilliant. It wasn't a catch. Of, he didn't catch it. But he didn't catch it. The, the, the assist in the catch was uh, was fantastic. Actually, the catch he took deep mid wicket mm. when uh, was it? Belgium went into him and he was given six. I'm not sure that was that was right, but. It was it was a fantastic catch to be able to hold on it when somebody got into you. But 
all I heard all you know, early part of the summer was watch out for Jordan Cox. You know, that we've got they've got a special talent down at Kent and uh, on the big stage. This is where you want to see them, manners. I've always said, you know, I've, asking players about playing test match cricket, can they handle the atmosphere over five days and the arduous effort, the, the amount of energy you have to use? And can this can they stand up on the big occasion? Well, the big occasion is finals day. And if they can perform on finals day, you know, you, you can you can tick the temperament box um as a positive. And I thought Jordan Cox did 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 brilliantly. What did he get? He got 58 off 28 balls. I thought his all-round contribution, especially in the final on a pressure, big stage. Yeah, well done, Jordan Cox. You were fantastic. In those catches, those boundary catches, we've seen lots of them now. And around the world, you know, and we know and we've spoken about the fact that fielders practice them. But to be able to evaluate that the ball is going to clear the rope and that you're going to have to step over the rope if you want to take a conventional catch, to then time the jump, and in most cases, um, fielders have caught it in the air and then caught the ball and then flicked it back to the supporting fielder. On this occasion, Jordan Cox has not even attempted. He's so far over the rope He's in, in fractions of a second, he's kind of figured that he doesn't have time to catch it and flick it back because he'll land. So he's just palmed it back. He's almost punched it. You've got to have strong hands to do that, I would imagine. But also, how do you practice punching the ball, you know, with the palm of your hand to a fielder who's in support? It just staggers me. We, you, know, you keep thinking, well, you won't see better than that. I reckon it must have been about seven or eight times now I've seen one of those catches and thought, well, you won't see better than that. And then yeah, you do. It then is, and it's amazing. You know, the, the, they do practice. You know, we have to we have to say you know, the preparation is there's no stone unturned. And a special mention to Matt Walker, coach of Ghent as well, who you know who will get you know these catches going and put the pressure onto the the you know the, the, the fielders to to sort of get their their house in order to make sure if the ball goes in that in that area, they can they can take the catch. So look, it was it was a fantastic. Bit of fielding, uh, element of luck. I think there's always an element of luck with these things, um, and a bit of good fortune. But um, boy, the way he batted, and then obviously with that everything going in his favour, it was a special day for for Jordan Cox. And I must admit, during my time, I didn't even contemplate going over the line and diving and trying to palm things back volleyball style. So, you know, it's it's just the way the modern world is now, manners. And just a final word about um, Sussex and the fact that Phil Salt and um, Chris Jordan are leaving. It wasn't to be for them. But, you know, they've invested heavily in youth. Um, there was a, one of my favourite stats of the day was that Archie Lennon, or Darren Stevens played six seasons of county cricket before Archie Lennon was born. <laughs> um, so, you know, Sussex have gone down this route of investing heavily in youth. And we are talking youth. I mean... You know that half the team's under twenty, so hats off to them for doing that. I, I suppose. I mean, there'll be them people who say, "Well, we're losing some some super players and big names," but you know, they rather invest in youth than um, than a bunch of thirty-five year olds. Yeah, and it's that, that just seems to be the way things are going down down at Sussex. I know Luke Wright was 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 on social media and disappointed to see players going. Matt Pryor. Uh, a former legend, not just for England, but for you know more for Sussex, um, going through, and he understands the, the politics of what's happening at Sussex. But I've said many, many times before, manners, the you know the clubs, and even even I support Newcastle United. The players will come and go. You know the the good times will will have struggle times, 
but the club will will always try and do its best and produce the best people that can possibly represent their their county. And Sussex are no different. Um, Salt will go. Jordan's gone. But if you've got you're getting players like Archie Lenham and a few others coming through at a young age, and you're giving them the experience and exposure, they'll pay you back. And hopefully for Sussex, the good times will not be too far around the corner with a group of kids who will turn into young men, who will turn into men and who will perform well for Sussex. So it wasn't to be on finals, dear. It's a big occasion, but I'll tell you what, if they get there again in the in the not too you know, distant future, they will draw on this experience and I'm sure they'll be a lot better than what they were against Kent in the semi-final at Edgebaston. Yeah, a lot of attention on Archie Lennon, but uh, not enough, I think, on his schoolmate, um, Dan Ibrahim from Bede School. Um, he, I, I mean, he's been a regular in, in all formats and uh, has produced runs and wickets on uh, a regular basis. So look out for him. Right, uh, Harmy, um, you're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. And in the final part of the show, we discuss the IPL and pay tribute to Michael Holding, who announced his retirement from the commentary box this week. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and Double Ashes winner Steve Harmison. And it's time to talk IPL, which dominates the world cricket landscape in a, in a way and to an extent that many cricket lovers around the world still don't fully appreciate. But that's maybe a topic for another time or later on in a few minutes' time. But first of all, the big news that Virat Kohli is standing down as both India T20 captain and captain of the Royal Challengers Bangalore after this year. And the IPL is set to expand. Not only are two new tenders being put out or tenders for two new teams being put out for 2022, but the talk of a second season of IPL each year continues to rumble on, perhaps even in America. The IPL, as Harmi and many, many others of us said 10 years ago, is taking over world cricket, Harmi. It is, and it is looking to take over a little bit more. And I think we said that last week when India decided that they were going to pack the kit day before the game and decide to, to go back to the UAE and, and get, get things going and miss the Manchester Test match. I think it's a sign of the times. Manners, there's going to be another two teams. I don't have a problem with that. I think it's a, it's a fantastic competition. I do worry, though, about a second season every year. And I don't even... And I'm not bothered if it's in America, Timbuktu or wherever. If there's a second season, that has a huge ramification on international cricket. And that's Test Match Cricket. Because we, whatever happens, however long the season is, if it's eight weeks, that's another eight, ten weeks out of a calendar that we have got too much cricket going on, full stop, from an ICC point of view, when a test match is. So how they do that, I think that's up to India. And it's, again, a bit like what we said last week. What is our governing body that in charge of the global game, ICC, what are they playing at? Have they still got their fingers up their backsides and just getting their bellies tickled by the BCCI? Or are they going to make a stance and say, you know what? No, you can't have it. It doesn't fit with the world game. I'd be very, very surprised if that happened, to be honest. The great Anil Kumble made a speech um, four or five years ago now when it became obvious that the BCCI was dominating. It became, you know, everybody had known for, for years before that, but it, when it became apparent that the BCCI was totally and utterly, irrefutably the controlling 
body in world sport. And Alcumble made a speech in which he said, with power comes responsibility. Um, and I do hope, and we all have to hope that, uh, you know, that that remains the case. Just very quickly on Virat Kohli, um, the, the great man might just be in a, a bit of a slump or perhaps he sees that uh, the, the, the long road towards the actual end is, uh, is, has started and that's why he's stepping down or lightening his load of T20 duties. Yeah, and it's, uh, he's a fantastic player for me. He's the best, uh, best of the modern generation. There is a there is a shelf life to be captain. I, I've said this for for a long time. You you can't. There's you, it's a freak of nature if you do it for fifteen years. It is. It's a freak of nature. You either play for a team that's not very good, and you have to do it for fifteen years because the only one that can do it, or you get four or five years. You you put your stamp on it, and you everything evolves, and you know you just take a little backward step. You still be very vocal. He'll still be very powerful in addressing him. Still be one of the best players. He will still play. But, you know, sometimes you just get a, a sense as a player that not only do we need to go in a little bit of a different direction, people are sick of my voice. And that's it. You know, people are sick of my voice. And I think that could be as simple as it is for Virat. You might just be thinking, you know what? We've got a fantastic side. We might just need a different voice. We're saying the same song. You know, the same choir is singing the song. You know, we just might need a different lead vocalist to say the same messages, to keep driving us forward, to keep telling us we're better. Um, we might just need a different tune to that song. So, you know, he's he's done a brilliant job as a, a T, and it wouldn't surprise me if RCB go and win the IPL, and it wouldn't surprise me if India go and win the T20 World Cup because they've got the side. And you know, when the side goes for their leader. Um, because he's going to come to the end. It wouldn't surprise me if they just go that extra yard for Virat Kohli. And, and why wouldn't it? Because he's been a fantastic servant as a captain of world cricket, as well as you know the India captain, because he has been a captain of world cricket, especially in test matches, which he's carrying on. But I think from a, a, a T20 point of view, you know, he, he's just thinking his team needs a, a, different, a different voice. Michael Holding, now then, um, he's only 67 years old. Many commentators, particularly the great ones like him, uh, tend to carry on and <laughs> until they can't. Uh, you know, they've carried on well into their 80s. Um, so he's called it a day at 67. This is what he said about his, his thoughts on, on TV commentary as long ago as 2014. I don't find cricket commentary difficult. You know, especially it might be difficult on radio because I think on radio you have to be a lot more detailed because people can't see it. But on television, the pictures are there already. All you're supposed to be doing is adding to those pictures. So I don't really find it difficult. But when you talk about going off on side issues, I just said sometimes things are a little bit slow. And that is, again, great fun to talk about things of the past or talk about certain issues within the game because people are seeing the pictures they already, you know, nothing exciting happening. So you give them a story about something else. And I enjoy that aspect of it as well. And depending on who you're on with at the time, it even makes it more fun. Well, he he did make it fun, you know. I mean, he was uh, whispering death. He he was very dry behind the microphone. Um, the, the sense of humour was contagious. What will you miss about him? Yeah, it's, uh, for me, it was when I heard that, it's a sad day for, for world cricket because... To not hear Mikey's voice on on anything, on whether it's he wasn't a big T T twenty fan. He 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 was a he was a traditionalist himself. Didn't have social media. 
he was a, a simple man with simple values, but what a voice, what a great voice. And I'll miss just the tone, the tone of his voice, his input at the right time. And when he when he was asked what makes a good commentator, was not saying, was basically, he more or less said not to speak, don't say too much, come in when it's needed to come in. Don't say, the, say things for the sake of saying things. Um, and a little story about Mikey. I was struggling in 2000 and, well, I can't remember what year it was, but it was at Old Trafford. Uh, me and actually, me and Duncan Fletcher fell out, fell out over this, um, which not the first time that me and Duncan fell out, and it wasn't the last, to be fair. But I, 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 I spoke to Mikey on the morning, and I was really struggling at Old Trafford, and I was having a bad time. And, and I just asked if I could see him. And that was it. I just, any chance I could see him. And I had half an hour with him in between commentary stints. Nobody knew anything about it, apart from Duncan found out. And out the way, and, and I asked him because he had the best seat in the house. The commentators have got the best seat in the house, a former fast bowler. And I just said, I asked him what, if he could see anything that I was doing wrong. And he, he did. He, he said I was arguably possibly trying a bit too hard, trying to bowl a bit too fast, wanting the natural re- natural action to, to come to the fore. And you, you just said you were pulling out of it. Left side was pulling out far too early. So he was, he was more or less telling me to hang in the air. Uh, just a little bit more hang time. And it was the way, I'm not even going to try and do his voice, a little bit more hang time. And it was a typical West Indian way. And and it, it helped a great deal. Um, but Duncan Fletcher didn't see it that way because he didn't like the media. And he said, you've got a perfectly good bowling coach here. I was like, yeah, but Mikey Holden is Mikey Holden. And he is one of the best fast bowlers that's ever been. And he would, be co- he would coach if he didn't comment it. Uh, if he wasn't such a brilliant commentator. So yeah, he did help me more than more than you know, he ever thought he could help me. And yeah, he's, I hope he just hope he enjoys his retirement because them, them horses are going to get some treatment down in Newmarket because he will never be aware. He, you know, he's, he's always, always you, know, you know him well as, as well, Manners. And, and I'll ask you, what's your overriding memories of Mikey in the commentary box? Because you spent a lot of time commentating possibly not for the same channel, but when you commentate, all the commentators are together. They're just along the corridor from each other and you see a lot of each other in downtime. My abiding memory is a very simple one. And that is, I was terrified of him um, <laughs> because he's whispering death. And and rather like Kirtley Ambrose, when he retired, you know, for, the, for Kirtley Ambrose, I was mesmerizingly terrified of as a player. Um, you know, he, you, you, you just... He would hardly ever do an interview or a press conference. When he did, he would say very little. I just found him terrifying. And when I first met Michael Holding, I assumed that Whispering Death would uh, be the assassin of a man. And and I was, yeah, it took it took me a, a while, several several days before I realised that he was kind, gentle, caring, empathetic. You know, it's that old difference between either side of the boundary rope. <laughs> I think he embodies the greatest difference. He did, and the thing is, as well, and there's been a lot made of of the the Black Lives Matter stuff and everything that goes with that. But there's some people, and 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 people get asked, and people get talked about, seeing things for effect, seeing things to promote their own cause. Well, Mikey Holden spoke on Sky News that morning, and a tear in his eye. There was no effect on that. There was no self-promotion on that. That was from the heart. That was from somebody who had suffered more than any of us I could even dream about. And that's why Mikey Holden's a great man. 
because he spoke from the heart. He give his cause and it was all about making other people's lives better. And that for me, that's, that is everything about Michael Holden. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. Great man, Harmy. We'll uh, see you again same time, same place next week. You've been listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. If you've missed any of the show or you wish to catch up, you can download the podcast now available on the following on feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you are keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.